In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter house of this glory shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. All right, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text together. Now, tomorrow is January 17th, and besides what appears to be, you know, potentially record snowfall, something else is going on tomorrow on January 17th, a holiday, actually. Now, which holiday? Well, January 17th traditionally is known as National Quitters Day. And according to research, it is the day you are most likely to quit a New Year's resolution. So sociologists, researchers, they'll tell you that the, the normal, you know, average human being in North America, your willpower lasts just over two weeks. So hence, you know, if you made it on, you know, the, the, the first of the new year, you know, January 17th. So if this year you decide I'm going to exercise more, I'm going to eat more Doritos, like whatever, whatever you decided you're going to do more of this year or do less of, tomorrow is the day most people quit. Now, there are many reasons that people give up on new habits, Right? Too costly, too difficult, none of willpower, the intrusions of life, you know, shoveling, you know, l- lack of results. And look, sometimes it isn't always a bad thing to quit. There's, you know, books you should probably give up on, I've, cold showers, you know, not, not, not worth it at all. But when, when we come to Haggai, though this project to rebuild the temple had started, if you heard the sermon last week, had started with great enthusiasm, now the people are on the verge of giving up. Haggai chapter 2, you can think of it as their January 17th. <laughs> they're, they're discouraged. They're like, I'm going to quit. I'm going to stop. And, and we, don't, we don't exactly find out why, but what we do know is that God sends Haggai to them in the midst of their low spirits. God doesn't want them to give up on this spiritual project they've undertaken. Because remember, it, it, it is about the building, but it's not about the building. It was a matter of priorities. Where do they put their trust? Where do they put their money? Where do they put their enthusiasm? The temple is a symbol of what they hoped in for life. And in today's text, the, the change of priorities symbolized in the rebuilding project, it's at risk of failing. And God's going to speak to them on their own sort of national quitters day. On their own day, when they're thinking of quitting, God's going to talk to them. So i got three sections for you as you walk through this text. First, we'll talk about present discouragement, why they're thinking of quitting. Second, God's encouragement. And then third, a bright future. 
Now, I mentioned last week um, that Haggai's kind of a stickler for dates. And in chapter 2, we find out right away that it's the seventh month and the 21st day. So just quickly, the timeline of Haggai is this. He began to preach on the first day of the sixth month. Work started three weeks later on the 24th day of the sixth month. And now something's about to happen on the 21st day of the seventh month. So just under a month from when work began, there are problems. So it turns out the staying power of the people of Israel, it's approximately as strong as you know, your diet plans or whatever. Now, now why? Well, the reason they're on the verge of quitting, it's a bit harder to see. But if you look at verse 2, Haggai is addressing the same people he addressed in chapter 1, Zerubbabel the governor, Joshua the high priest, and all the people. And God tells Haggai, ask them these questions, all found in verse 3. And so he asks, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? And is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now, you were like, well, what do those questions mean? Well, here's what Haggai is doing with them. He's calling attention to the fact that the current temple is not like the old temple. It had been about 70 or 80 years since the first temple had been destroyed. Only the oldest people think everyone there has to be, to remember seeing that temple, they would have had to be 75 or 85 years old. Only the oldest among the people would have remembered it. All the rest, all the younger people, they would have heard of its glory, heard of its splendor, heard stories about it, but they never would have laid eyes on it themselves. Now add to that the fact that in the Israelite calendar, it's almost the Feast of Tabernacles. Now the Feast of Tabernacles reminded Israel of their time wandering in the wilderness. Tabernacle means tent. It's like, oh, that time when we lived in tents, you know, for years and years. There there is a time for them to be thankful for God for bringing them into the, you know, uh, the, the land of promise. But additionally, Solomon had dedicated the first temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. So there's this reminder that, oh yeah, we're coming up to this big holiday when we remember there was once a glorious temple, you know, on this spot. Everything was right in the world, the golden age of Israel. And in front of them now is just a ruin, you know, piles of rocks, bits of charred wood. One month into work, if you think about how big the temple was, what the destruction would have been like, they're probably still clearing rubble away at that point. But instead of trying to cheer them up, God, through Haggai, he's articulating their thoughts and feelings. He's saying out loud probably what they think, but maybe don't even have the courage to say themselves, that this new temple, that's kind of a bummer compared to the old one. The new temple, even if it gets built, even if they go on with this work, it's, it's not going to be the same. See, one month into working, progress is going to be agonizingly slow. Basically, Haggai, God, they don't disagree with their reasons for wanting to quit. They're like, I know, it's a huge job. Progress is slow. The new temple is not going to be as great. All these things are true. Yet he says to them, be strong. And before we get to what God tells them to do next, how he encourages them, I want to talk a little bit about present discouragement. Because the leaders, the people, they've been obedient to God. They've undertaken this great project, but they're discouraged. And they're on the verge of quitting. I bet if we were to make a list together of all the things that are getting us down, sapping our strength, taking a toll on our spiritual health, I mean, it feels like right now the list is gigantic. If we were to think of everything that's up against us as we try to make God a priority in our lives, there are any number of things. And maybe just to give one example, let's say it's year one of marriage, and things aren't going well. And you fight all the time, and life is not what you imagined it to be, and the pandemic has put you in the same room with your new spouse like a little too much. And, and, and as you stare at the amount of work it's going to take to great, make a great marriage, perhaps today you just feel totally discouraged. 
You know, I would say, based on Haggai, the place to start is not by pretending all of the problems don't exist. Because clearly they do in, in this marriage example. You know, to start is just to articulate all the thoughts and feelings about the, the mountain of things that lie in front of you. You can begin by being honest. Yeah, you fight a lot. Yeah, the pandemic is awful. Yes, life and intimacy and everything else hasn't been great. Okay. See, it's not just people having a rocky first year of marriage. We're in all sorts of stages and ages of life. Maybe it's issues with friends, with your parents, with your children, with your job, with the government, with your health. Like there's, there's a million different things, but maybe this morning the mountain of problems has you discouraged. Maybe it's not even sin exactly. It's just that life is defeating you. You know, sometimes we imagine that life with God should have the veneer of perfection, that our prayer should be kind of glossy, smooth. But you know, when Jesus invites us to himself in the Gospels, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Jesus doesn't invite the well-put-together, the immaculate, those sailing through life. I mean, they're welcome too in in a more general way, but the specific appeal is to the discouraged Anyone demoralized by life? See, if any of you is discouraged, any of you are discouraged in the present, if you're not just quitting your New Year's resolutions, but if you're kind of giving up hope on spiritual progress, if you're discouraged in in important friendships or relationships, now is the time just to begin being honest about that. Don't bury your head in the sand. You don't need to pretend things are better than they are. You can just call them, you know, call them, call it as it is. You know, in my very limited experience, most uh, retail stores do an inventory once a year. And back a long time ago, when I was a youth, I worked at Old Navy. And towards the end of the year, back when Old Navy first came to Canada, any older people remember that? And at the end of the year, we'd work overtime for a few nights to count up all the jeans and t-shirts and whatever in the store to see if it matched with our records, but also just to get a clear perspective as we began the year on, on, on where we were actually at as a store, what we actually had in stock. Taking an inventory is about honesty. It's just acknowledging, what do we have? Where are we at? What is going on? This is where God begins with the discouraged people. But it's not where he ends. So let's move to part two, God's encouragement. Now there was a cartoon that went around the internet. It was pretty early in the pandemic. But basically in the first frame is a worn out mother and she's trying to balance online school for her children. She's trying to do her own work, household responsibilities, health, you know, so on and so forth. That was like the first frame. And the second frame, it shows her saying to herself, all I want is some help. And in the third frame, there's this person kind of calling from afar, whatever, saying, you got this. Uh, but then in like the fourth frame, or somehow at the end, uh, no one offered any practical help. She's just kind of left all alone. And I know for many parents, that's sort of what the pandemic, or much of the pandemic has felt like. Everyone telling you how great you're doing, offering encouragement from afar, but also feeling like you need help that's not coming. And you know, it's not just parents. Healthcare workers, teachers, grocery store workers, like other other various frontline vocations have have experienced this in, in sort of similar and different ways. But the common response culturally when someone is discouraged, when someone's run down, is that we tell them, we know you can do it. And if you listen for that phrase, you start to hear it everywhere. We say it to children in sports leagues. (laughs) We say it to exhausted parents. We say it to to 20-somethings in their first job and first apartment. You know, we say it to lonely or bored seniors. You got this. 
And on one hand, if you stopped reading this text in the middle of verse 4, that seemingly is a biblical message. Because if you look there, Haggai tells Zerubbabel, be strong. And then he turns to Joshua and says, be strong. And then he turns to all the people of the land and says, be strong. And if we stopped right there, isn't that message sort of similar or even essentially the same as, you got this? Well, the problem with you got this is no real help is offered. Telling someone who's failing to be strong, (laughs) it might give them like maybe a momentary burst of energy, but there's no enduring help. All we're left with is like the mother at the end of the comic strip still alone. And so listen, is this all that God and the scriptures have to offer us, an injunction to try harder? The rubble is overwhelming. The opposition is intense. Our spirits are failing. You can do it. No, that's not the end. That's not all that's offered. Look at the last sentence of verse 4. Here's the difference. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. See, God doesn't simply tell them, try harder, dig deeper, find the last reserves of human spirit. No, no, he says, I am with you. And interestingly, Lord of hosts, the name used for God here, it's the name Yahweh Sabaoth in scripture, God of armies. God who can command legions of angels. God who has for his troops uh, frost and hail and lightning. The God who commands and rules beasts of the sea, birds of the air. The God who is with Israel as they labor is the God of armies. And not only that, the Lord, the God who tells them to work is the same God, according to verse 5, who's been overseeing and loving his people uh, in this covenant way since the time in Egypt. The God who's been working with them generation upon generation is the same one who tells them to work now because he is with them. And he reminds them, my spirit is in your midst. So don't fear, but get to work. See, listen, the promise of the scriptures to those who who are profoundly discouraged, to those whose arms are worn out, it's not you got this, but God is with you. And there's a profound difference between those two things. In the first, it all depends on you. But in the second, there is divine presence and empowerment. You know, later in 1 Corinthians, when the Apostle Paul is explaining how a church grows, he says the leaders of the church, they all are servants and they all get a job to do. And Paul calls himself a planter of seeds. And he calls this other guy, Apollos, who he worked with, a waterer of seeds. But Paul concludes it's God who gives the growth. It's like, Paul plants, Apollos waters. Sure, 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 but it's God who gives the growth. And later on, at the end of that letter, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul tells the Corinthians, the Christians, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, and listen, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So look, when you read the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. On one hand, the Bible you know, instructs us, be strong, work, labor, all of those things. But it pairs it with this encouragement that the God of hosts is with us. Making your labor into something beautiful. His spirit is in the midst of us, adding to our paltry efforts. The God who has loved his people for ages is still at work in us today. You know, it can feel... When you are facing trouble, that you are all alone in it. Maybe as you try to navigate online learning with your kids, that felt exhausting and isolating. Maybe as you try to meet new people in a new city, that can feel very lonely. Maybe you're trying to rebuild relationships fractured by COVID opinions. It can feel like, well, I'm the only one who cares about this. 
As you try to change a sinful habit or behavior, it can feel like this, just this mountain you're climbing all by yourself. But I can assure you today that God is with you. He's with you in these things. As you go to work on these projects, as discouraging and overwhelming as they may be, God promises his very self. Now, to be clear, the scriptures teach that God is with his people in a different way than he is present in the world. I've been saying you, with you, quite a bit this morning. I think it wise, just take a moment to distinguish between uh, God's presence. And the Bible speaks of God's presence in, in two major ways. See, first, God is present to every human being in the world by nature of him being God. He is what we call omnipresent. He's all, all the present, you know, everywhere at all times. Not physically, but spiritually. He's not taking the space. There's room for your body and mine. But he's spiritually everywhere. There's no place you can be without him. No place to hide from his gaze. So in that sense, we can say he is with everyone. God is with them all the time. But today, I'm not speaking of God in that way. And I don't think that's how the text is speaking of him. Rather, when I say God is, is with his people, I don't mean that he's omnipresent with them, though that's true, but he is with them in a special way. The scriptures speak of his empowering presence, his working alongside his people by his spirit. See, when God promises his people here in Haggai 2 that I am with you, it's the second kind of presence that's being alluded to. He's promising his active presence, his helping presence, his assisting presence. That's why I can speak confidently and tell you, if you belong to Jesus, the Spirit of God himself is assisting you. He's enabling you to perform whatever lies in front of you, all the, all the roles and, and, and tasks you've been called to, in the same way that he's empowering the Jews to rebuild their temple. But I also tell you this morning, if you are not a Christian, then God is not with you in this way. He sees you, he knows you, he longs to be in relationship with you, all that is true, but he is with his people in a different way. And just by the way, what a relief this is, right? What a weight off our backs. I don't know about you, but I have a couple things in my life that feel impossible. Situations that are seemingly beyond repair or relationships that have huge cracks in them or thorny issues that are impossible to solve or feel impossible to solve. And this week, even as I was preparing this, I felt a kind of weariness contemplating everything that lies before me, wondering, how am I going to do this? How am I going to handle these things? What a relief. God doesn't just say, you can do it. He says, work for I am with you. Okay, let's talk about part three, hope for the future. See, a big part of Israel's discouragement about the present work is they think, well, even if we build it, this temple's not going to be the same. You know, and in a physical sense, that's true. Solomon's temple, different size and shape than this second temple they're trying to build. But more than that, Solomon's temple was filled with gold. There's gold everywhere in Solomon's temple. Other precious metals, all kinds of you know, tapestries and, and artwork and stuff. It had a kind of splendor that would be impossible to match. But it wasn't just that. It also had the presence of God in it. When Solomon dedicated the temple, you, you can read about it. The presence of God came with such power. It filled the temple with smoke. And it says there was so much smoke, the priests are like, we can't work. Like, we can't see enough. We can't see far enough. There's too much smoke here. God's presence was so tangible in that place. And now the people are staring at the rubble and think, well, it's never going to be the same. And so to that discouragement, God promises, he gives them a picture of what it will be like, a promise that the project they are undertaking will one day bear fruit. 
And if you look at verse 6, God promises, in a little while he will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, the dry land. He'll shake the nations so that the treasures of the earth will come in and the house the, re- the Jews are rebuilding will be filled with glory. And God tells them, by the way, all the silver, it's already mine. <laughs> all the gold, I own that as well. Then look at the promise of verse 9. The glory of this house will be greater than the former. The second house will be more glorious than the first. And in this place, I will give peace. Now, there's a lot to pick through here. Uh, and we, you know, we could spend a, uh, too, too long of a time. But I want to give you kind of a familiar analogy, one we've used in the past, that will help us interpret this passage well. To understand an Old Testament prophecy, it's like looking at a mountain range from the ground, right? So if you stare at a mountain range from the ground, you're standing on the the prairies or whatever, staring up at the Rockies, you see one peak that's very close to you usually, but off behind that, you know, kind of to the side and behind or whatever, you can see a number of different peaks stretching off, you know, uh, as far as your eye can see. When it comes to prophecies like this one, we normally understand that they are fulfilled in multiple ways, or they'll be fulfilled in, in, in multiple events. There's often a near peak, a a close fulfillment, but nearly always there are additional peaks, there are additional fulfillments of the prophecy later on. And you'll see what I mean here in a moment. But let's first deal with this shaking prophecy. God promises to shake five things, the heavens, the earth, the sea, the dry land, and the nations. Now what does that mean? Does it mean that God is going to like earthquake those places? Is, 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 Is it a physical kind of shaking? Or... Is it a more metaphorical kind of shaking? Like, he's going to upset structures and institutions and, you know, ways of being. Well, if you look very carefully, it says, yet once more, right there at the start of this verse. Which means that at the time of Haggai, when Haggai gave this prophecy, it had already happened at least once, perhaps on multiple occasions. So we aren't expecting something unprecedented, but something old. And if you look through the pages of Scripture, if you kind of look backwards through the pages of Scripture, for both a a physical or a metaphorical shaking, I think the clearest example we can find is at Mount Sinai, when God descends on the mountain to give the people the law. And the mountain shook. There's a physical aspect to it. It quaked with his presence. But it also was a metaphorical shaking because it gave the Israelites a whole new identity. They had a whole new set of laws. They, They became a whole new nation. Now, also of help is there's an obscure passage at the end of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, which directly quotes this verse, directly quotes these shaking verses and interprets it to mean that God will shake all of the earth in such a way that temporal things will pass away and only what's spiritual will remain. So it interprets it in a more metaphorical way. Now one more thing, then we'll put some of these pieces together. The consequence of the shaking, according to Haggai, will be the treasures of the nations will come into the temple. Okay, so let's put, let's put the pieces together. I think what God is promising here is he's going to return to earth in a physical, tangible way that will cause all the people of the earth to take notice. And this physical return will have spiritual consequences. It'll cause spiritual transformation. So if that's the interpretation, then what can it refer to? Well, I think you can read this prophecy, or read this as a prophecy about the first coming of Christ at Christmas. Or, and, a prophecy about the second coming of Christ at the end of all things. See, in both of these cases, God comes to earth in a physical way with dramatic spiritual changes accompanying it. Right? In the course of Jesus being born as a baby, his incarnation kicks off the establishment of the the spiritual kingdom of God among the nations of the earth. And all the treasures of the people begin to find their place in the kingdom of God. And at the second coming, Revelation 21 
promises in the new heavens and new earth. All the kings of the earth will bring their glories and treasures into the new world. So I think this prophecy of shaking has, has sort of these two peaks in view. One closer, the first coming of Christ. One, one further, the second coming of Christ. Now the second prophecy uh, is of the, that the glory of the temple will be greater in the days to come. Again, it's a couple of things here. One is that King Herod will, you know, in the days preceding Jesus, will indeed enlarge, and at least in a physical sense, enhance and beautify the temple. So that might be, that might be poss- possibly what, what Haggai means. But I think more to the point is that the New Testament, right, Jesus talks about himself as the temple of God. Now, the true temple all along was not a building, but is going to be the body of Christ where people are brought close to God, sins are atoned for. See, at the end of verse 9, when God promises he will bring peace in the temple, I think it's fairly straightforward that Jesus makes the most sense as the fulfillment of that prophecy. See, the way for this second temple to be much more glorious is if the temple itself is fulfilled and surpassed by Jesus. So if this shaking means the coming of Christ, if the greater glory of the temple means the life and death of Christ, what exactly is this prophecy doing for the Jews trying to rebuild? And here I'm just asking the question, why? Why is this prophecy here? Why did God give it to them? Well, for the Jews, I think it fills them with hope. It's a promise to them. Hey, your stacking of bricks isn't in vain. Your woodworking, your masonry, you know, they aren't laboring without hope, but that God himself will bless the work of your hands. God reassuring them, this temple doesn't look like much now, but I got big plans for it. It'll be glorious. It'll be meaningful beyond their wildest dreams. And I would submit that for the Christian today, it works in a similar way. This is a reminder. God takes our normal efforts, our average everyday efforts, and he can make something beautiful out of them. As you work in labor, as you write prescriptions or teach math or write code or care for your families, like whatever you do tomorrow when you wake up, that God can take what we offer and fill it with glory. That our labor is never in vain. See, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, one of the consequences was the ground would be cursed. That our work, whatever our work would be, it would always be frustrating us. It would always be full of weeds and thistles. So today you feel some angst about your work? Of course you do. Of course it feels overwhelming. Of course your life feels like it's full of thorns and thistles. Of course there's things that are, that are growing up in your soul. That is the nature of things. But the curse is opposed by the power of God himself, that God is undoing in our ordinary lives the curse of the ground. He's restoring what's been broken. See, this prophecy invites us to look both forward and backward. Backward to the work of Christ on the cross when sin was paid for, when Christ became the temple through which we commune with God, and it makes us look forward to the day when the heavens and earth will be shaken and the kingdoms of the earth will pour out their treasure. Listen, the world with its weariness... It's not all there is. And it will not always be so. One day discouragement will be no more. One day weariness will be no more. One day sickness will be no more. One day the glory of God will cover us like the waters fill the sea. So listen, tomorrow it's National Quitters Day. And maybe you're like, I want to give, give up tomorrow. But listen, whatever spiritual project you're working on, whatever relationships you've been called to, whatever, whatever's in front of you to do, work for God is with you. Let's pray together. God, we thank you, and we are grateful for this text of ages past. 
which reminds us of how you continue to work in us today, how you attend our labors, how you fill them with your spirit so that they amount to something. I pray for those here, those listening who are discouraged, kind of beaten up by life right now. Would you encourage their hearts? Would you remind them of your presence? Would you speak to them today? In Christ's name, amen.